Esteban, who are you creating this project for? We're recovering these stories for descendants, for descendant communities. At some point, hyperbole in my dissertation, I wrote, there's not a single New Mexican that does not descend from an enslaved indigenous person. You just heard Esteban Real Galdez, whom on March 31st of 2023 gave a public presentation of his project Native Bound Unbound as part of La Coalition de Taos's cultural intelligence series, which took place during the spring at the Martinez Hacienda in Taos, New Mexico. This is where we meet, sharing conversations from New Mexico and beyond. I'm Alice Morillon, and this show is supported by the Northern Rio Grande National Heritage Area. Taos Center for the Arts would like to recognize that it operates on the homelands of the Red Willow people of Taos Pueblo. We'd like to honor the ongoing dedication and importance of native and indigenous cultures within our community and within the land we live, learn, and exist on. Native Bound Unbound, Archive of Indigenous Slavery, is a research project with the goal of creating a centralized digital repository centered on the lives of the enslaved indigenous people across the Americas. Esteban Real Galvez is a doctor in American cultures. He has worked as senior vice president of historic sites at the National Trust for Historic Preservation, as the executive director of the National Hispanic Cultural Center in Albuquerque, and as the state historian of New Mexico. In March 2023, he presented his research project, Native Bound Unbound, Archive of Indigenous Slavery, at the Martinez Hacienda. The following recording was captured then. Here, Raul Galvez introduced the project and connects it to stories that shape identity for him and other individuals who grew up in New Mexico. For radio purposes, Raul Galvez's presentation has been edited into two 30-minute episodes. You're listening to the second one. A video recording of the entire presentation is available online through La Coalición de Taos's YouTube channel. Here is Esteban Raul Galvez answering questions from the audience about the project. How widespread was indigenous slavery by indigenous peoples themselves, capturing and enslaving people and trading them? Indigenous slavery was happening even before 1492. People were being captured and bartered for different reasons. Um, it's not my expertise. We'll bring in experts to actually trace that a little bit. Some of that is recorded in some of the codices of Mexico, some in the archaeology. But I will say that the Europeans perfected it. It, 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 um, it catalyzed to an extent that the Americas had never seen before when the Europeans brought it in. There were, even in the Taos Valley, to make it a little bit more local, PA was a multi-way trade, right? The, the youths were capturing Diné people along the long walk. They were selling them. The Comanches were capturing Hispanic people and other tribes. Um, the, the Diné were capturing all kinds of people, the Diné, the Navajo. That's why to this day there is even uh, there are clans. The N Nakai clan, for instance, is a Mexican clan. Those were uh, Hispanic people, Mexican people, that were being captured, taken into the Navajo Nation, and they became a whole clan. So it was a, a multi-way trade. Um, 
based on my research, at least in northern New Mexico, for every one Hispanic person that was being taken away from New Mexico, there were 30 indigenous people being brought in. So that, again, part of what this project will do is give that detail to this. But, but here, let me be clear with what our, the project is all, all about. To the extent that we found, find and record any evidence, whether a document, archaeology, or otherwise, our interest, in, our interest is any indigenous person who has been displaced from their own community placed into another community. Marcos Martinez uh, just actually opened up a really wonderful conversation about, about the fact that we've learned so much of our history top down rather than bottom up, right? It's the elite that, and that, that we know, right? The lions, what is the saying? The lions don't write the history right, of the hunt, right? And and the the servants, the women, the you know, none of those people in those early records, they're not writing the history. We don't get the history of children. We superimpose that. We don't know from their perspective what is happening. And that's certainly true of how we how we think about who makes history in in globally in the united states or otherwise we think of the presidents of the popes of the you know and they're the ones who are commissioning people to write those histories um but i want to know about sally hemmings right we've started to interrogate these things for um we you know we think of our founding fathers as we hold them up high they created a de de democracy that is untouchable but I think that we have to be critical. I'm trained to be critical of, of thinking of those things. So when I mentioned Sally Hemings, she was the African enslaved person in Thomas Jefferson, one of countless, well, they counted them, many individuals in Thomas Jefferson's estate, as was George Washington. So these founding fathers, they, even as they espouse principles of, of freedom and democracy, they were, as all of us are, we, identity, Eduardo Galliano has written, identity is no museum piece sitting under, sitting stock still under a piece of glass. We are is the endlessly astonishing synthesis of the contradictions of everyday life. And that is as true of Padre Martinez as it is of Thomas Jefferson, but it's all the more important to learn about those histories of the people who have been marginalized in those epic stories. I just, I'll finish this here about this. I was raised by a farmer and a school teacher. Those, those two types of, of roles are, they're, 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 they're seasonal. There's not, nothing remarkable. I, I think there's something remarkable about them, but there's nothing remarkable. You plant your crop, you harvest the crop. Plant the crop, harvest the crop. Plant it, you, you bring in the, the, uh, the sheep, you have a new crop of sheep, right? All of that, it's, it's rote, and there's nothing remarkable. But anyone who has gone to know my dad, this 95-year-old man who is remarkable, is a remarkable man whose story deserves to be known. So I think of him as remarkable as any, any, any governor 
in this state, or anyone who, Padre Martinez, who brings in the printing press. Absolutely, we need to know that. But we also need to know Rosario's story, right? So I can preach on. <laughs> you are listening to Where We Meet, a program of the Tau Center for the Arts. Esteban Real Galvez is presenting the project Native Bound, Unbound, Archive of Indigenous Slavery, and answering questions from the audience at the Martinez Hacienda. Here, he talks to the notion of identity in northern New Mexico and then follows by answering a series of questions from the audience. I always like to contextualize it. it, it it's true that people, even to this day, identify as Spanish. Uh, um, and, and how they do that without thinking. I mean, it's how many people grew up. But there's a reason, there's a reason for that that I think has to do with, dare I say, supremacy, a, a little bit of the white supremacy that was happening in the early 1900s. You know, they erased people's, the, erased those histories, erased Gilberto's background, erased your background, erased those things, so that we started to, I, the, I you know, think about post-1848, U.S. has been occupied um, and taken in a in a in a in an illegal war, right? Northern Mexico, and 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 people want to belong. I mean, part of it is that there was, I mean, the, New Mexico was in part isolated, not as isolated as people thought it was, but from the Spanish courts, Mexican government, but then it would also be continued to be isolated by the U.S. government tangent there but but the 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 fact is that after 1848 people were were still wanting to belong to something and and we were de denied st the status of full citizenship for over 60 years kind of like what has happened to Puerto Rico right and because of that there was a political consequence to that denial it meant that the president of the united states during those 60 years could actually um, appoint all top officials governor on down this is related to this i promise but so during those 60 years i mean people wanted to belong and had to prove their sense of belonging and it uh, so there's a political context in which this is taking place. Then the artists come in and say, the writers, Mary Austin and others, and say, you guys aren't, aren't you're not Mexican, and you don't descend from indigenous. No, no, no. You guys are of the golden age of Spain. You're of the, you're Spanish. And they started to spin a narrative early 1900s. And I'm generalizing here because there's a lot of history packed in here, but but the generalization of that identity starts then, and then we our communities buy into it. And why did they buy into it? Because it's it, it, it makes a better story. It's less messy. It's it it and it it they thought would protect them from the racism that they were having to endure. Around that time, early 1930s, 1920s, 30s, 40s, people could go into the San Luis Valley or even further up, and they, there, were, there were signs, no dogs, no Mexicans allowed. So there was real racism on the ground that made people say, I don't want to be that. 
I don't want to be that. But here's the irony. They, they were saying, well, I'm not Mexican. And they were like, well, you eat tortillas, you eat beans. You're, you're like, you're culturally, you're all of those things. You speak Spanish. You know, a border separated you. But you're kin. You're cousins with those people from Durango, Zacatecas, Chihuahua. You're, 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 you're similar to them. And we're not, we don't see the difference, Right. And so in spite of that, that so, but people continue to want to solidify their identity as Spanish. But as I said to that, the, the students who were interviewing me, like what I said, identity is not a museum piece. We are not a little piece of pottery or uh, any of those things that say we are much more complex. I like to think of us more like the Russian uh, nesting dolls. We're one inside the other inside the other, inside the other. So you, you identify who your parents are, who your grandparents are. It's true. If you want to trace that one line back to Spain, but at the 10th generation, New Mexicans have a tendency to say this all the time. I'm a 20th generation New Mexican. And, and I say, mm, what does that mean exactly? Right? <laughs> I mean, here's what it means. It, again, I'm not I'm not um, making fun of it, but it is incomplete at the very least because it tra they're tracing one line, one line back to generally that male line that comes from Spain. But if they trace that female line, I guarantee you it's going to be in, it's going to end with an indigenous woman. I guarantee you, ninety percent of people who have tested. A DNA test, they're coming up with an indigenous woman. But at the 10th generation, we descend from, I'm not going to remember the number here now, but it's like 2,000 individuals. So imagine 10th generation, you invite all of your ancestors into this courtyard. I think about 2,000 would fit there, right? Something like that. Or they'd spill out into the yard. Those are all your ancestors from the 10th generation. And it's like, Someone who says, I'm this or that, and it could be, I'm Apache or I'm Spanish, you're picking one of those. You descend from all of them. You descend from all of them in a way of honoring that. But I'm especially interested in the ones whose story has not been told. Let me ask this one. Would, would we be surprised to find more Spanish ancestry in tribal Pueblo people to be common in the same way that we find indigenous ancestry in our local Spanish communities. Um, I, I wouldn't be, I personally would not be surprised. The colonial experience complicated everything. Everyone was being mixed. That's just the reality of, of all of these communities. Um, I, uh, um, DNA is complicated. But as, you're as people are starting, more and more people are doing DNA result t tests, they're seeing across these communities, they're, they're finding how interrelated people actually are, um, sometimes more than they want to find out about. Um, but but the, the reality is, is that all of these communities were impacted by colonial regimes. And sometimes that was be acts of violence rape and other things, slavery, 
And sometimes it was acts of love. I mean, people had relationships within these communities, across tribal communities and, and across cross-culturally. So that's absolutely true. I wouldn't be surprised. Here's what the DNA actually is saying, that, that if 90% um, of people who test a matriarchal line of those, not everyone is tested, obviously, in New Mexico, but both Pueblo people and Hispanic people who have tested between 85 and 90% of those who have tested an mtDNA line, the mother's 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 mother, is coming back with a Native American haplogroup. 15% of the males are, uh, y DNA test is coming back with a Native American haplogroup. That supports what we know from colonialism. That's what supports what we know from the archive, for sure. We have team members who are working with us already from various um, um, indigenous nations. Now, here's the thing with, they're working from places like Peru or Mexico. A lot of tribal sovereignty was erased. So those, unlike the US where, where we have recognized tribal nations, not entire, not for every community, some are still fighting for that in places like California, but but in places like Mexico, those like the Otomi people, it's not a sovereign nation, but we're still endeavoring to work with those with those various communities. In terms of what people think about it, I've heard all positive um, in terms of the communities that have began to work with us. Here's an interesting thing that has emerged, though. As I talk to reporters or other potential partners about the project, one of the very first things that happens is that people immediately say, are you working with the tribes? And so the answer is yes, we are. But I, I, to one reporter I said, would you ever ask that same, if, you, if I were African American working in California or Virginia or wherever and I was working to recovery the, recover the history of African American slavery in the US, would you ask if I were working with the tribes? And he paused and said, no, I hadn't thought about that. So there is a different um, standard that's being used in terms of focusing on indigenous slavery from African-American slavery. You know, those tribes are across the Atlantic Ocean, right? So they're in Africa. But, but um, I think the difference is here is that there are tribes that exist throughout the, or tri uh, tribal indigenous communities exist throughout the Americas, including in places like New Mexico, where there are still sovereign tribes. But, but you know, I think about this as there's a, tri a community of origin where a person could have been taken from the Diné, Navajo Nation, or Comanche, or Apache, and, and they, someone lost a son, a daughter, a sister, or a brother, and those people who were left behind, they have descendants. And, but those people who were taken became the ancestors in other communities, right? And that's true of any slave regime, right? That's true of any slave regime, right? That if you are working with African-American communities who live anywhere here in New Mexico or Virginia or wherever, they, they, they have 
There's a tribe that lost someone who became the ancestor of that person that lives here. And there's, there's a lot more complexity to this, but that's how we start to break this apart and try to understand why there seems to be a double standard when people interrogate this. But there's not been a lot of interrogation. There's been more support than anything else. What was the ending point that I can think of for indigenous slavery, and in what way does that relate to... Um, I don't use chattel slavery anymore because <laughs> I use uh, African-American slavery. Uh, how does that correlate, the ending point for indigenous slavery, and how that correlates with African-American slavery? Um, so African-American slavery, as we know, ended with the Civil War, right? So the Emancipation Proclamation... Um, uh, so uh, legally ended that, but not really, right? And because it, it, the Reconstruction, all of the, it, it just morphed into something else. So the name, they weren't being called slaves anymore, but they were still doing the labor. So it continued. It's not so different with indigenous slavery either. But I meant, so when Andrew Johnson, he didn't do exactly a proclamation ending indigenous slaveries in the territories, but he put out an edict asking the Indian agents to end the practice. And so that's where that list came from. Three years later, 1868, they bring in a whole new um, individual to actually interrogate this. He creates a grand jury. I mentioned this, that one of the places where he uh, charges men and, and some women with holding enslaved people was in Taos County. 290 individuals were actually charged, 1868. That's odd for, it should have ended, right, in, in 1865 when that edict was passed. But here's what I know, 1870, they're still being listed as servants in the household, same people that I've traced as be, being captured and, and identified in the baptismal records. 1880, they're still being there. Same ones, same households. Now now the, the former enslavers, their sons or daughters are living in that household and they're taking care of them. We don't have the 1890 census, unfortunately burned completely in the US, so we don't have that census. 1900, they're still there. All the way to 1950, San Luis, Colorado, some of the, I traced Guadalupe Gallegos, who is in Dario Gallegos' household. She's now three generations removed from Dario, who left her from one son to one, the next son. So I, the, the last captivities were taking place in the 1880s. The people were still being held in these households into the 1950s. So I wanted to start just thinking about this, or the way I think about it poetically, but, but I, I think it's true on the ground. I like uh, one of my favorite po poets, Borges, reflected on the last person who knew Jesus Christ and when they last closed their eyes. I think, who was, when was the last person that had been captured and enslaved when did they close their eyes? I reflect on this a little bit when I'm writing about a man from Conejos in San Luis Valley who died in Denver in 1847. And, and, but I say he's part of a larger landscape where men and women were slowly closing their eyes, right? 
And so, but we're their heirs. So Daniel opens up a conversation that is going to keep us here for another 30 minutes. Um, in terms of how we start to imagine the lives of the enslaved, um, was their life better um, in, their, in their enslaver's household? Was I'm going to answer the last question that you ended on easier, and then I'm going to come back to this one. But was it common for um, those who had captured and held them in their households to leave them items in their last will and testament? Yes, it was common. Um, well, I don't know if it was common. Um, we're going to trace how common it was, but we have exa many examples of individuals who were leaving um, their indigenous enslaved people pieces of land or part of a house. In, um, in se about 1740, if I remember the date correctly, it certainly was the mid-1700s, uh, a man by the name of Antonio Gurule in Bernalillo writes up his last will and testament. And he identifies Rosa and Elena, who were the Indias who belonged to his mother that now belong to me. Um, and he says, I, with, at the time of my death, they will be free, as free as they were from the day that they, they were born. And I leave them um, una milpa so that they can take care of their families. Um, so when I think about individuals like that, or the Marias, there were three Marias that Severino had in his household. I've tried to imagine where their lives were. It's hard for us. The, those of us who historians, we do interpret or and we imagine what those lives would have been like. We have to imagine what their lives would have been like. It's true that you know the the stigma and the labor of living in in those households. We, we don't know. We, we know that they were doing the labor. We know that they were raising the children. But what it felt like to them, we can only imagine, right? If you imagine not knowing whether your mother or father or your grandparents, being severed from your ancestry completely, not being able to Think about that. I, I mean, those are the things I think about. Like, what did, what did Maria, as she moved between these walls, what did she imagine her life might have been had she not been taken? Um, at the time that she was living, she was earlier than, than someone like Rosario, but um, it, it, there, were, there was continuous warfare. One... It, 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 some, some of those enslaved people would go on to say, I think I am better off. Of that list that I showed, the 149, only a handful said that they wanted to return, something like 12 that they wished to return. Now, what I don't know is, how did you ask the question? Who, who or did you ask the, the little girl there that was five years old? Or did you ask the, the, the man who was in charge of her? Like, what agency did she have to make that decision? What I do know is, um, because it showed up in a, a record, seven years later, seven women 
uh, escaped and died in the snow, escaping from from the San Luis area. I, we we don't know. All we can do is look at the records, imagine what their life might have been like. That's our responsibility as people trying to remember them. Now, what I also know, I don't want to end. So, I mean, this is a traumatic story. It it it's affected us to the very core. But the fact that 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 I know there's all of the Nueva Mexicanos in this room. You descend from that. I know you do. And maybe others of you who came from other places also descend from it. I mean, Orlando Patterson says that there's not a single person alive who does not descend from an enslaver and an enslaved person. I think that's true just because the phenomenon affected us globally. But the fact that you are here means that she or he survived right? And that you were left here to survive that. So for me, it speaks to the resilience. I think of the work, I think of a metaphor. I'll end here so I can let you guys go. Um, the metaphor that, that defines so much of this work are aspen trees. Um, I love aspen trees because they're part of our geography. They're part of our landscape. And I think of them, what I call my three R's. Uh, as those of you who know, um, the there's one root system, right? It looks like individual trees on a mountain, but but they're interconnected by one root system. That's us, right? We're interconnected. Whether you identify as Pueblo, whether you're he, he identify as Spanish, Hispano, Chicano, that you're you're a tree. You're an aspen tree, and it's one root system that interconnects us. Um, the, 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 the aspen trees, what they have done is they heal the mountain. Once it's burned up, it, they're like regenerate. I think like that fire is what ravaged uh, a community through colonialism and slavery. But the aspen trees come up to heal it. So it's about resilience. And that's what those individuals who lived through these experiences were. They were resilient like those aspen trees. And finally, the third R is radiance. Because if you look at those aspen trees up on this Taos mountain, you see those quaking leaves, which is how they refer to the, the leaves when they shimmer in that way. That's us too. That, that, that all of that wisdom is passed down, those stories, and that's us too, the roots resilience and radiance. That's who our community is, through the good and through the bad. And we just have to remember them whole. Raul Gavis is leading the project Native Femme Unbound, Archive of Indigenous Slavery. You just heard a portion of the presentation he made at the Martinez Hacienda in Taos in March 31st of 2023. La Coalición de Taos organized the event and graciously agreed to this year recording the presentation to later air it on the radio. La Coalición de Taos facilitates educational experiences to inspire informed community action that benefits the land and water, people, and historical cultures of the Taos, New Mexico area. Where We Meet comes from Taos Center for the Arts in Taos, New Mexico, and is supported by the Northern Rio Grande National Heritage Area. Producers include Chelsea Reedy, Alice Morillon, and Anna Forster-Smith. <laughs>